Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. The letter of 1 Thessalonians is considered by many to be Paul's earliest letter. It was written as a celebration of the flourishing church in Thessalonica, who were standing strong in their commitment to Jesus despite great persecution and suffering. We first learn of that church in Acts chapter 17, where we find that Paul stayed in the city for at least a month in order to share the good news about Jesus with others. Thessalonica would be key in the spread of the gospel as it was on not only the important trade routes of the time, it also had an excellent harbor that drew traders from far and wide, making it easy for the gospel message to go out from that place. Well, let's look at what we're told about Paul and Silas in Acts 17 verse 1 onwards. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So Sabbath after Sabbath, Paul proved from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. The word Christ in Greek means the anointed one, and it is really the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So Paul was proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah who had been spoken of in the Old Testament, the one whom God had promised to send. In response, some Jews, many devout Greeks, and a lot of leaders women were persuaded by Paul's reasoning, and they joined Paul and Silas, which really means that they left the Jewish synagogue. And this resulted in jealousy on the part of those Jews who had not believed in the apostles' message. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. It is interesting how those who were opposed to the gospel were not above rounding up some bad characters to riot in the city. Being part of the synagogue, these people were supposed to represent God 
and yet they were willing to stoop to any measures in order to prevent Paul's message going forth. They raided Jason's house where Paul and Silas had been staying, and when they didn't find them there, it was Jason and some of the others who were dragged before the officials. So as to stir up the city against the Christians, the Jews made very similar accusations to those that had once been made against Jesus. They accused Paul and Silas of being international troublemakers, blaming them and their converts of promoting Jesus as another king, thus implying that they were trying to encourage rebellion against Caesar. They made such a protest of it all that eventually even the authorities were thrown into turmoil, and so they imposed what was called a peace bond on Jason and the others. A peace bond was a large sum of money that was taken as a guarantee from Jason and the rest that assured that they would see to it that Paul and Silas left the city and that they would never return, for if they did, the amount of the peace bond would be forfeit. According to Paul, this was a ploy of Satan to stop him from returning to visit the church in Thessalonica. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 18, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Apparently, the way Satan hindered them from returning to the city was through that peace bond that had been collected from Jason and the others. Interestingly, though, Timothy had stayed in Philippi, and he'd not been with Paul and Silas at that time, and so Paul later chose to send him as his representative to visit and encourage the church in Thessalonica, because the peace bond didn't apply to Timothy. As a result of all of that happened that day, we learn in verse 10 that as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to the neighboring city of Berea, where they went right back to preaching. Their message was received with great eagerness in that city too, so much so that the word got back to Thessalonica about how many people were coming to faith in Christ. And verse 13 reveals that when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds, causing Paul to have to be smuggled out of that city also. Paul's ministry was one of perpetual motion, often not by his own choosing. It was after his sudden departure from that region that he reconnected with them by letter after hearing a report about them from Timothy. In his first letter to them, Paul celebrates the flourishing church at Thessalonica that was standing strong in their commitment to Jesus despite the incredible persecution and suffering that they had to endure. And he focuses on holiness and reminding us that following Jesus as king produces a truly countercultural way of life that will sometimes bring us into conflict with our neighbors. However, our response to their hostility should always be that of love, grace, and generosity, motivated by the hope that we have in the com coming 
in the coming kingdom of Jesus that began in part with his resurrection from the dead and which will be completed finally at his second coming. So with that as our introduction, let's look at what Paul had to say to this group of believers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Paul does not write this only from himself, but from Silas and Timothy as well. And we will soon see how often he uses that word, we, as he writes to those in Thessalonica who find life in God the Father and in Christ. He greets them with grace and peace, which he used specifically to make everyone feel included. You see, at that time, believers from a Jewish background would usually use the word shalom or peace to greet each other, while those of a Gentile background would greet one another with the word grace. And by using the two words, he includes both of those groups of people. Paul begins by immediately informing them of how he, Silas, and Timothy pray for them. Notice how encouraging he is when he says, We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and his friends were thankful for the Thessalonians and they prayed together for them often, and particularly in regard to three vital aspects of Christian life, for their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. We can work for many reasons. We can work to earn a living. We can work to earn the praise of men. We can work out of fear or we can work out of pride. Or we can work inspired by faith in the fact that our task, whatever it is, has been given to us by God himself. And when we realize that whatever we do is done not for men, but rather for God, it helps us to see value even in the routine of everyday life. When labor is prompted by love, no task will be too small or too great for us. I once heard a story that really gives this perspective. There was an author by the name of Bernard Newman who traveled through Bulgaria, which is actually not very far from Thessalonica. As he entered the humble home of a farmer, he noticed one of the man's daughters sewing. Hour after hour went by with her taking such care over each small stitch she made that Newman eventually asked her if she didn't get tired of her work, to which she replied, Oh no, sir, you see, this is my wedding dress. Labor prompted by love always holds a splendor for the one who does it. And no matter how long it takes, we are able to endure, inspired by our hope for what is to come. Paul commended the Thessalonians because of everything they did was a reflection of their faith in Christ, their love for him, and their hope, or in other words, their certain expectation of all the blessings that they would receive at the Lord's second coming. Verse 4. 
For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of a reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. When Paul calls their brothers and sisters in Thessalonica loved by God, he's actually using a special term that Jews only ever used of extraordinary men such as Moses or that they only used when speaking of the nation of Israel itself. By calling these people God's beloved, he's really saying that the greatest blessing of the most notable of God's people was also true for Gentiles who were in Christ Jesus. Paul and his companions knew that the believers in Thessalonica were both loved by God and specially chosen by him. And you know, that is my prayer, that we understand that the same is true of us also. God loves you and he's chosen you for a purpose. When Paul had preached in their city, he knew that his message was not a matter of words of men's wisdom, but that what he said had been spoken with the Holy Spirit's power. And as a result, something remarkable had happened in their hearts, for they'd experienced a deep conviction. It's really important, though, that we understand this. You see, God does not condemn us for our sins, but he does convict us, and there is a difference. Condemnation is all blame and disapproval, bringing with it a sentence of shame as well. That's really what Satan does to us. But conviction is different in that it not only allows us to recognize our sin, but conviction also helps to see what we're to do about it, and it gives us the courage to try. You see, God not only shows us our sin, he shows us how we might be free of it, and he enables us to live differently to the way that we used to live. Paul knew that the Thessalonians had been transformed upon hearing the gospel because they'd begun to live in a similar way to Paul and his companions. More than that, though, because Paul and his friends were modeling themselves after Christ, the believers in Thessalonica were actually imitating Jesus also. And in spite of severe suffering, they began to live out the message of the gospel with the joy that only the Holy Spirit could give. 
In so doing, they became a model for other believers everywhere as groups in other places began to talk about the Thessalonians' faithfulness. Now, I want you to pay special attention here to verse 8, where Paul says that the Lord's message rang out from them, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, their faith in God had become known everywhere. Think about it. In a time of such persecution, it would have certainly seemed wise for the Christians to keep a low profile, to live in a way that would escape the notice of the authorities. But they didn't. Instead, Paul says that the message of Christ literally rang out from them far and wide so that everyone everywhere knew about them. And I think that there is an encouragement there for us in that though we must be loving, we cannot be timid. We cannot remain hidden. People must know what we stand for and who we represent. There had been a drastic change in the lives of those who came to Christ in Thessalonica, and Paul says that they had turned from worshipping mere idols to serve the living and true God. The idols they'd once served were merely lumps of wood and stone. These were not living, and nor were they true. But all that had changed when they swapped those empty, lifeless things for the true and living God of the universe— the king of all kings. Paul adds, saying in verses 9 through 10, that they had turned from their old way of life to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. The Christian life is really all about serving the living and true God as we wait for Christ's second coming. Interestingly, in each of the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Paul mentions Christ's return, which is really vital to our strength and endurance, especially as we face persecution. Paul declares that not only did God the Father raise Jesus from the dead, but that it is through Christ that we will be rescued from the judgment and the wrath to come. For those who have put their faith in Jesus, their sins have been judged at the cross, and his return will bring with it all that he has promised. As Paul continues in 1 Thessalonians 2, it seems he may be addressing some of the criticisms that Jews and false teachers had leveled against him as he appeals to the church to remember his previous ministry among them. Let's have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. 
Paul wanted to remind them of the success of his ministry to them and how God had transformed people's lives as they believed what he preached. He specifically addresses his previous suffering in Philippi where he and Silas had been falsely charged and arrested. Perhaps people were insinuating that because he'd been imprisoned, he couldn't be trusted. But Paul reminds them that he'd been imprisoned because of the strong opposition to his message, a message that he had continued to preach nevertheless. This was not something he'd been able to do in his own strength, though. It was because God had given him the courage to persevere that he had continued in the mission he'd been given. In verse 3, Paul reveals three charges made against him. Some said that his message was the result of error, though Paul denied that. He knew that they didn't want to accept his preaching because it was a message that people's itching ears did not want to hear. Another accusation was that Paul preached from impure motives, implying that he hoped to win over women with his speaking skills and that he was trying to trick his listeners for his own advantage. But on the contrary, he and his message were approved by God and it was the Lord who had entrusted him with preaching the gospel. It was God who guided his arguments. Paul was not a people pleaser. His only thought was to please the Lord and to carry out the mission he'd been given. He knew his heart and also the hearts of those who were serving alongside him were judged by God. God was his witness that he'd not deceitfully used flattery nor put on a mask for his own advantage. How many people do that today, though? They cover up who they really are simply for the purpose of self-advancement. But Paul didn't focus on what was in it for him, nor had he ever looked for praise from people, not from the Thessalonians nor anyone else. He reminds them in verse 8 of his and Silas's behavior when they were last with them, saying, As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we were preaching the gospel of God to you. Because they were church leaders, they really could have insisted on support from the Thessalonians. They could have been a burden to them. Not only that, but they could have also harshly exerted their authority over them. But instead, they had gently loved them, rather like a mother caring for her small children. You know, as a mother myself, I know that a good mother doesn't want her children to struggle, but rather to flourish. And she will always put their well-being ahead of her own, even more especially when they are little. 
Paul and his associates felt the same way when they thought of those they'd brought to faith in Christ. Love overflowed all their dealings with them as they not only shared the gospel with the Thessalonians, they shared their lives with them as well. And I think that's a really important thing for us to remember, that as we seek to win others for Christ, it's not only about sharing the gospel with them, it is about sharing our lives with them as well. Christians cannot be self-focused isolationists. We are called to loving community with others. We know from elsewhere in the scripture that Paul was a tent maker by trade, and although he'd been given help from the church at Philippi while he was with the Thessalonians, according to verse 9, Paul had also worked hard and endured much hardship so as not to be a financial burden to them. He was there out of love, and because he loved them, he wanted to share the truth of Jesus Christ, which had transformed his own life. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Both the Thessalonians as well as God knew the kind of life Paul had lived while he was with them. He had represented Christ as one set apart for God's service. He was holy. And clothed with the righteousness that is found in Christ alone, he had lived a blameless life. My question to us, of course, is... Could the same be said of you and me? Do people know that we are devoted to God because of the way that we live? I want you to understand, though, that even when we do live an exemplary life, the Bible says that there will be people who still accuse us of doing wrong. That was true of Paul, and you know, it was also true of Peter, for example, who encouraged the believers, saying in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. You see, they may accuse us of doing wrong, but there is a day coming when Christ returns, when all shall be revealed for what it truly is. In verse 11, Paul illustrates that he had not only been like a loving mother to them, he dealt with each of them as a father dealing with his own children, encouraging them, comforting them, and urging them to live lives worthy of the Lord who had called them. Paul and his companions were grateful to God for them, and he states in verse 13, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is 
the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Paul gives insight into what true Christianity is all about. He said that when the Thessalonians heard his preaching, they'd received the word of God, acknowledging that it wasn't words spoken with Paul's own wisdom, but they believed this message to be God's word to them, and that's what changed them, transforming them as they fully yielded their lives to Christ. Though made up largely of Gentile believers, the church in Thessalonica had become very much like the first church of Jewish believers in Judea, in that following Jesus hadn't brought them to a peaceful life, according to the world's estimation of what a peaceful life should be. No, following Jesus had actually brought them into persecution. They suffered from their own countrymen the same things the Judean churches had suffered from the Jews. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to remember their persecutors were heaping their sins up to the limit and the wrath of God was already upon those who rejected Christ as Savior. Do you notice that Paul is sticking to his theme here of Christ's return. At the end of chapter 1, he spoke about Christians who wait for Christ's return, assured of the fact that Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. And then here he says that by contrast, those who try to prevent the gospel going forth, they heap up their sins to the limit and will find that the wrath of God has come upon them at last. Christ will return and happy is the person who has entrusted their life to him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your words of encouragement to our hearts today. Lord, I pray that we would work according to our faith, knowing that you have called us to a task. Lord, that our labor would always be prompted by love and that you would give us great endurance that is inspired by our hope about Christ's second coming. Lord, we just want to praise you and thank you for everything you've said to our hearts today. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.